1740, the wager filled with 250 men of varying physical abilities left Portsmouth with a squadron of ships on a secret mission. It was assumed sank. Nearly two years later, 30 weakened, wasted, and battered men appeared on a patched-together boat in Brazil, identifying themselves as shipwrecked members of the wager. Six months later, another, smaller, fabricated boat turned up in Chile with three men in dire condition and seeking refuge. Oh, Lord. These men claimed the first boat were mutineers. Mm. Whose story is fact? The book, The Wager, a tale of shipwreck, mutiny, and murder. The author, David Grant. And you're listening to Lit Society. Let's, Let's get, get lit. And this is Kari. And you're listening to Lit Society, a podcast about books and drama. Show you right. Kari. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You feeling all right today? Mm-hmm. Good. Glad to hear it. How you doing? Uh, I'm not doing well. I, I got a little sickness creeping in. Well, you look beautiful. Oh, you're very kind. Kari, I know that you're finding your appreciation for swimming. But how do you feel about being on boats? Have you ever been taught to sail or um, taken any classes associated with boating? I've been mm. I've been sailing, but I don't I'm not a, I'm not a sailor. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like you won't find me at the not the Ramada. What is it called? Anyway, not the Ramada. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. So I don't have a fear of boats or anything, but I have no Great. education around them or about them. Okay. What about you? No, I don't have any education, um, but I did have a friend that was a sailor and she would go out every weekend. So I talked to her and learned some stuff from her, but I don't know anything about it. That's cool. And I went to camp and we were on sailboats and learned a little bit about it then. But mm-hmm. that's about it. But that was as a child. Right. And so nothing, nothing really. But... That's going to take us into our theme of the week, folks. All right. Each mm-hmm. week, we select a theme to discuss uh, inspired by the book that we're reading. And the theme chosen for this week is a quiz. <laughs> <laughs> Nautical terms and phrases. No, Are you ready, Kari? Not for you. Wait, hold on. So as y'all know, if y'all listen to our show, we, before we discuss the book, we discuss the theme, as Alexa said. And part of my book discussion is a quiz for you. So you Come on. The tables have turned. The tables. Oh. <laughs> this is a that new means you'll, yeah. <laughs> That means you'll probably have the answers to everything. I hope so. Were they in this book? The, or you can tell me. Listen, Go ahead. You, you got Harry, it. Harry, my mm-hmm. friend, the tables have now turned upon you, okay? I pulled okay. phrases and terms that were defined or referenced in the book. Oh, then and I'm you good. simply need to provide the, the correct book. word and phrase to answer correctly. Okay. Look at you. And I knew you was going to do something shifty like that on me. I knew oh, it. I knew it. So you probably have all the answers. Mm-hmm. This is not going to be as can fun I, for me. Is this an open book test? No, it's I'll not. I have to remember. Oh, then I don't. Okay, go ahead. I'm mm-hmm. ready. 
Ooh. All right. There's no prize. You just simply need to get it right. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm going to give you the definition <laughs> or uh, information about it and you just make a decision. Okay. Let's do it. Okay. All right. First word, a structure made of fabric that uses wind power to propel it. Oh, I have to guess the word. A structure made of fabric that uses wind power to propel it. A sail. Yay! Oh, yeah! Very nice, very nice. Oh, I got this. Done. (laughs) You got it. You got it. The main (laughs) body of a ship or vessel, including the bottom, size, deck, um... Yeah, all of that. That's the that is the Hulk, the the salt, the the hull. Close enough. Hull. It is the hole. Very good. Oh, very shut good. Up. Yes, Come on, me. girl. Come on. Well, you know I've been sailing my whole life. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> right. Okay. Wow. A water <laughs> cask where seamen gossiped while awaiting That's their the rations. Ew, you, you know, I know where the human gossip is. Yeah, that's the scuttlebutt. <laughs> okay. Um, this is the back or aftmost part of the shipper boat. Listen, you're not in the front of the boat. You in the booty, the butt, the boat booty, the boat <laughs> booty. <laughs> is that the, what's that called? <laughs> yeah, that's what I want you to tell okay. me. What is it called? <laughs> the tail. <laughs> Close enough. It's the stern. The stern the is the stern. back of the boat. Yeah, the back Thank of the boat. Thank you. Oh, you're being kind. I would have yes, never guessed that. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This expression comes from when um, the boatswain or the boosun's whistle for everyone was to be quiet at night. The boosun is also like the deck boss. Quiet on deck. Oh, wait, hmm. that's quite on set. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. What is it? Pipe down. Okay. Okay. Isn't that simple? Yes. It's very simple. Mm. Okay. All right. <laughs> this is a long pole that rises from the keel or deck of the Mast. ship and it supports the yards. Yes. Very hey. good. Very good. All right. <laughs> and then. This is expression comes from when the boys were forced to stand still for inspection. Tell the with line. Okay, I'm gonna appreciate it when you let me do my whole thought. Okay, go ahead. That's correct. For the, though. For the listeners at home, call in <laughs> if you know these phrases. Okay, go. <laughs> okay. This is the backbone of the ship and it runs along the center of the bottom of the hole. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We know an illustration that uses this term. Oh. Rudder? No. Ah. Uh, that's all I got. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> the bow? No, no. <laughs> a keel. It's the keel. Oh yeah, because keel over. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. Oh shoot. Okay, you just got a few more, and then you have uh, successfully answered <laughs> when many when of these correctly. Dinner. Yep, and order it yourself. Go for it. <laughs> okay, 
This is when the lines of the sail broke and the vessel was pitched out of control. Three sheets to the wind. What is this phrase? Say it again. Three sheets to the wind. Correct. Correct. You know, I know them inebriado sayings. (laughs) I be telling people, yeah, why are you acting all three sheets to the wind? It makes me feel learned. Come on now. Have you used that in your everyday life? Yeah. Have you? I have. <laughs> you three sheets Especially to, to children. Ooh. Don't nobody act more inebriado than babies. Anyway. <laughs> okay. New word. It's the flat plate used to steer the ship. The steering wheel. <laughs> that no. is the... Oh, oh. It's located in the stern at the stern of the ship. Oh no, girl, that's the oar. (laughs) (laughs) This is actually attached to the ship. Oh. The rudder. Yes. Oh, yay. I knew that would come in handy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And so this is a long pole. This is a pole that's along the foot of the sail and it helps to control the angle and shape the sail. I mean, I know I can think of what it is. Does it rhyme with asked? No, you already (laughs) used that. And it was wrong then. I don't even know what I'm thinking of. But you answered the asked question. Oh, I did. I don't know. What is it? (laughs) You must make it What kind of friend would make a friend do something like this? Not a good one. Seriously? I'll never forget. Uh (laughs) It's the boom. Oh, yeah. No, I. Yeah. And that and that structure is the same on like audiovisual equipment too. That right. name all comes from the same thing. I never remember. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the final phrase. It's the term that became popular after Vice Admiral Nelson deliberately placed his telescope against his blind eye to ignore his superior's signal to flag a retreat. Turning a blind eye. <laughs> Yay! Yay! <laughs> Excellent job. Yes, you you deserve that chicken dinner. Order it tonight. Order it tonight. It's on you. And this Popeye's and the delivery. They do. Believe me, I know. <laughs> and that is our theme of the week. Again, phrases and terminology used right in the book that we uh, covered today. That was brilliant. Why don't we take Thank a quick you. break. All right. Sounds good. share about the author and context for this book yeah so his uh so the author's name is david gran and he is a graduate of connecticut college tufts university and boston university um his notable works include the lost city of z and killers of the flower moon um he's also dabbled in nonfiction in the past Mm -hmm. uh so he is indeed a writer uh Mm -hmm. this book we're reading The Wager, A Tale of Shipwreck, Mutiny, and Murder. This is one of five books he's published. And this one was just published, honestly, like a few days ago, (laughs) a few weeks ago. It was published this year. Mm -hmm. So I'm not even sure what I'm going to do 
with the ending as we dive into the story, if we're going to give it away or not. Um, But he's also been a writer for the New York Times, like a columnist. Um, Mm. His articles have been collected in several anthologies, and that includes what we saw, the events of September 11th, the best American crime writing of 2004 and 2005, and the best American sports writing of 2003 and 2006. What I like about David Grant is that he is a writer. And um, as we're living in a time where uh, the future of writers is very uncertain, um, and as we know, uh, currently writers in Hollywood are striking, Mm-hmm. Um, David Grant made a career out of traditional writing. So yes, he has public public works, uh, but this is a man who is indeed a writer. He continues to research and write for various publications and sometimes publishing his own work. This is perhaps a style of writing uh, that is not as prevalent as it used to be. Uh, and um, there's some romance to it, especially if you're a writer. Uh, mm. he, he lives his life going down rabbit holes, going through archives and seeking um, the narrative in our histories. I think you mentioned one of his book, The Moon Book. Um, I saw that that I actually saw the previews for the movie a couple of weeks ago before I even um, looked up the book oh, that's that we're covering this So Alexis week. is talking about Killers of the Flower Moon, um, mm-hmm. the Osage murders and the birth of the FBI. That sounds very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I watched that preview. It's very intriguing. And and what I like about him as a writer is that his sto- he's really digging into these stories, these true stories. And yeah, he's a nonfiction a writer. Story? He reminds me of what um, like I think of people who write both fiction and nonfiction, perhaps Capote. Um, Mm. And and there's some um, stress and torture in both styles of writing. But the nice thing about nonfiction is that the facts are there and the story tells it itself to you right. if you're listening. Um, but you have to take the time to go where no one else has bothered to go or has been able to go use your access to find those archives and those stories and to tell them as accurately as possible and as honestly as possible. Um, but but that story specifically that you mentioned, I really I want to read that book. That's, again, The Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, and that came out in 2017. Yeah. And this um, book that we're covering today is also being adapted into a movie. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, that's yeah, interesting. The same. Um, and they're going to try to stick with the same cast that they're using for the the Killers of the Moon. I can't get that book. Why? Yeah. <laughs> It works, I guess. Okay. Guess it Oh, that's works. interesting. Sounds mm-hmm. like actors are on strike and maybe there's something easy. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, you know, speculating, but I've never well, heard of Leonardo that. Leonardo They're Caprio. not even in the same universe. <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio is. Um, oh, oh, okay. So. Thank you. Well, you didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I should have led with that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Leonardo. that's cool. Mm-hmm. What Leonardo you, DiCaprio is in both. What um, in part both. would DiCaprio play in the book we read today? Ooh. Oh, let's think. Let's think. Oh, I already I know. think he could be um, <laughs> cheap. You do? Oh, he's older now, right? I was thinking mm-hmm. Byron, but he's probably too old. So I like yeah, where you're going. Yeah, he's too old to play Byron. Yeah. Cheap. Yeah, I could see cheap and maybe an Edward Norton as a Buckley, perhaps. Mm. Anyway, that's very Ooh, that's interesting. Good. That'll be fun. 
That'd be I fun. love it. Okay, okay Kari, thank you, thank you mm-hmm. for sharing that um, author detail. Uh, why don't we have a brief synopsis without spoilers before our deep dive? Okay, an English ship embarks on a covert mission to steal Spanish treasure, but as hunger and exhaustion seize the men, they enact a mutiny. In the end, it is not just the seamen who are on trial, but the very ideology of colonialization. In this true story, who will live, who will die, and which side will be proved right by history? Alexis, what were your first thoughts? I love it. My first thoughts, um, the opening of the book really grabs your attention. So I was just like, okay, I'm all in. I I didn't, when I got the title, I wasn't initially intrigued, but um, the opening, the prologue really grabs you. And thank you for answering that question. Honestly, I always forget. We don't ask that question anymore because we, (laughs) but I like your answer because I felt the same way. Like I I have been interested in reading this book because I want to mix in more nonfiction on our show. And Mm -hmm. this is traditionally a boy's book. This is a book that in school, my teachers would have said, no, you don't want to read that, dear. (laughs) 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 For no reason. (laughs) So... That's I, really I wanted to bring it to our readers um, and because it's not thick. Uh, so, yeah, I like your answer, even if the wager and shipwreck and mutiny that don't, doesn't initially intrigue you. First of all, what's wrong with you? But that's fine. When you <laughs> read the first few pages, uh, perhaps your opinion will change. Right, and Alexis, right. who do you think would like to read the wager? I got to answer two questions. Yeah. <laughs> the wrong one to. and the right one. No, I don't want to. <laughs> okay. I don't have an answer for that one. Oh, so really I would glad say like some one. Robinson Crusoe lovers, um, perhaps the Lord of the Flies people, if they exist. <laughs> the Lord of the Flies. I don't know that story. So I, you know, I don't know. I don't yeah, know. If you like that, if you, if, <laughs> first of all, what's wrong? Get help. But if you like that, (laughs) then I think you'd be interested in this. (laughs) Okay. Okay. And so you talked about it a little bit, but why did you choose this book? Yeah, it's a new book, but it came up on a few um, lists of best nonfic books recently published. Uh And that was enough for me. Uh, Reading the synopsis did intrigue me. And I like the idea of two boats showing up, one of them being, you know, celebrated. But then a week later, a few weeks later, everyone's like, wait a second. (laughs) What's going on here on this day? So, yeah, that intrigued me. So, listen, I remember you put a poll in on our Instagram page. (laughs) And what was the shout out for is this? This was one of the suggestions, right? Yeah. So y'all had me reading tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And I said, not today. So (laughs) I read half of it and I could not finish it. Oh, I might go back to it. But it was time for us to publish our schedule. And so I needed a book to replace it. Some of y'all suggested we read The Help. And that's when I said, you know what? I'm going to go. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. But no, thank you. I did read But that, thank though. you. You would. Um, so, so I went through a few published lists of best nonfic and then found this book and okay. presented it to our readers. And they was like, nah. And here we are. <laughs> <laughs> so what is we do read? listen to 
y'all until oh, we okay. don't. And I know y'all can understand. Like sometimes you read a book and people be like, "Why are you reading that?" I remember yeah. I had a phase where I was reading a lot of Malcolm Gladwell, and uh-huh. a few friends were like, "Why are you reading that?" And I was like, "Why do I have to justify why I want to read this? It just intrigues me. I want to read yeah. it." Choose now I realize that was probably not the best decision, but. <laughs> Oh. At the time, I was all, it was like my Dan Brown era. Sure, I have regrets. I I'm a little ashamed, that. but listen. We read those together. It's fine. <laughs> have you reread Dan Brown? It will make absolutely you question not. your sanity. Uh, absolutely not. This is what <laughs> cut it to me at the time. It's fine. None of this makes sense. Uh, moving on. Yeah, so here we are. The Wager, a, a boy book. <laughs> Okay, then, Kari, are you ready to take a spoiler-filled deep dive while you're still thinking about that into The Wager, a tale of shipwreck, mutiny, and murder? I am. And I'll say this. If you haven't read the book, we are going to set it up uh, in a very detailed fashion, but I don't think that's going to ruin it for you. This book is really like four books. It's a book about sailing. It's a book about 1700s colonialization. um, And it's a book about uh, mutiny and what happens when castaways are forced to face uh, like the darkest parts of their desperation what part of their humanity, you know, lasts. Um, And then it's also like this bigger idea about what's right and wrong, even at this time and what people actually know to be right or wrong, but maybe don't say it out loud. Mm. I hope that makes sense. It will if you read the book. Um, So there's a lot going on here. And I feel like uh, our detailed description of the story will not ruin it for you. However, toward the end, as I do get towards some quote unquote spoilers. I'll warn you guys if I go into that. We might not even have time. So we'll see. Also, another note, the audio (laughs) version is narrated by Dion Grant. So if you're on YouTube and you're watching this episode, you see I have the book here. I had to, in order to finish this book, I had to both listen to it and read it. Mm. Um, I'm not sure I have a preference either way, but the details stayed in my mind more when I read it from the pages. Mm -hmm. Um, But Dion Graham also narrated Harlem Shuffle by Colson Mm -hmm. Whitehead, and he's got a great voice. Did you listen to this book or did you read its pages? I listened to it. Mm What would you think of the narrator? Oh, he's a um, I love his narration. He did a good job. Yeah, me too. Third note. (laughs) So the author starts with a statement um, that I'd like to share with all of you. And it's about how he gathered the facts. Um, Whenever you dive into history, you're really dealing with uh, third party narration. And you honestly have to admit that aside from comparing everyone's tales and trying to find the truth in that, you're just going off of what you can deduce based on the quote unquote evidence. Uh, So he says he didn't see the ship strike the rocks or the crew tie up the captain. Captain. Okay. What he has seen though, are half truth filled journals, court martial records, archival debris, um, and the story of those that were there. These are conflicts, of course, but the verdict is ours to render. There are conflicts, Mm -hmm. excuse me, but the verdict is ours to render. So let's begin. Prologue. The sun, an impartial witness. For days, the ship drifted under the sun until a boat crashed onto the coast of Brazil. 
30 men were on board covered in seaweed smelling of death. One, in fact, did die after the crash. He was so Mm. exhausted that even when they reached their salvation, he dropped dead. A figure who seemed to be in charge told an unbelievable tale. They were all castaways from Her Majesty's ship, the Wager. The secret mission was to capture a hidden Spanish treasure. After a hurricane, the Wager was believed sunk. 283 days after it was seen, the ship appeared on the coast. More than 50 men had died. They traversed nearly 3,000 miles. The boat on which they were found was pieced together from pieces of the wager. And the wager, by the way, is a man of war. Um, So for all those listening, that's not a term we use often. A man of war is Royal Navy jargon for a powerful warship. So um, throughout this book, you'll hear about talk of a man of war. uh, that, That means the ship. So the wager was a man of war hailed for their ingenuity and bravery. These men were um, accepted onto shore. The leader among them commented, it was hard to believe that human nature could possibly support the miseries we've endured. Six months later, though, an even smaller boat hit the coast of Chile. It had three survivors in worse shape than those in the first boat. They were half naked, delirious, emaciated, covered in insects. Okay, Mm. bugs had begun feeding on them already as if they were dead. They recovered and returned physically and returned to England with an outrageous charge. The men on the first boat weren't survivors. They were mutineers. Stranded after the wager was damaged, a spirit of depravity fell over the men. Some even succumbed to cannibalism. Both sides birthed men to tell their stories, their lives on the line, dependent on the believability of their words. If not convinced, authorities would hang them. Part one, the shore. This is fun. So all the sailors on the boat carry their own unique story, of course. And the one we'll get to know first is David Cheap. (laughs) That's right. Cheap, like people who got money but don't spend it. He's the first lieutenant of a ship. He's in flight for money problems. I'll give you a little knowledge on his background. His dad married a woman, has some kids. That woman died. He married again, had more kids. Uh, David Cheap comes from the second wife. One day the dad went outside and bumped his head and found him dead. What's the kid saying? And he didn't get up in the morning. (laughs) And the kids from the first marriage was looking at David Cheap and was like, we're going to be like our last name and just give you a couple dollars every now and again. Mm -hmm. So. David Cheap had money problems um, and the inheritance was spread then anyway. So when he turned 17, he ran to the sea and everyone was happy to see him go. <laughs> so the wooden world of the ship provided him refuge and purpose. This is how people feel on Carnival Cruise Line. They like, listen, we done <laughs> did a lot of wheeling, dealing and unlawful acts on on land, terracotta or whatever it's called, Burma. <laughs> But we done did all these acts on Terra Firma. Let's go out to sea and cause a ruckus. You know, Carnival Cruise Ship. Mm -hmm. I've been on them, so no judgment. Mm -hmm. Well, that's how it was back in the 1700s. This is 1700s, right, Alexis? Yeah, yeah, 1740s. Yeah, Yeah, so whatever was ailing you on Terra Firma, you could go to the sea and forget those troubles. Now, 
you would inherit a whole bunch of new troubles (laughs) that might be worse, but it, but you also might end up famous and rich. So yeah, a lot of people did this. David Cheap's goal was to become captain of his own ship one day. He's trying to find a place for himself in the world with some esteem to go along with it. Um, He's trying to get the Centurion ready to sail. And this is a ship led by Captain Anson, who uh, fortunately was hand-selected to lead the ships against the Spanish. So Anson is over the Centurion. He's captain of the centurion. He is the type of figure that men follow blindly. Some men even said they look they look for his approval more than they look for the approval of their own fathers. You know, those type of leaders that just ingratiate themselves to those under them. That was Anson. And Anson actually handpicked David Cheap as his first lieutenant. That puts Cheap uh, one step closer to the power that he wants. It was real honor. Um, Samuel Johnson, an English writer, said this of the men at the time that chose to sail. He said, no man, no man will be a sailor who has contrivance enough to get himself into a jail. For being in a ship is being in a jail with a chance of being drowned. End quote. That's crazy. Go to jail. (laughs) You too stupid to get into jail? (laughs) This is what Samuel Johnson is saying. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. (laughs) Colonialism and the sea. So at this time, European powers are battling to spread their empires with the goal of exploiting and monopolizing the resources of other nations. The ambitious thirst for blood and power led to the killing of entire groups of indigenous peoples. Please let your mind settle on this. All the people in our history books, we we know somewhat of them. And a lot of what we know about them is actually lies. But there are groups of people we'll never know about because they were wiped out by colonizers. Europe pacified itself with the belief that its men were spreading civilization. Now, if they really believe this, whatever. But this is what um, people in power fed to their public. We're spreading maybe Christianity, civilization, Mm -hmm. you know. Yes, we're dying in the street from cholera because, you know, we poop outside and we just let it sit in the street. And that's nasty. But this is civilization. Um, Britain and Spain eventually became (laughs) neighboring rivals. In 1738, Robert Jenkins, a British merchant captain, reported to Parliament that a Spanish officer had cut off his ear. And this really... It created like a domino effect. He was like, <laughs> to me, reading this is clear to me. He was probably stealing from the <laughs> other, <laughs> from the Spanish. Uh, but he was like, I'm English and I can do what I want. He went to parliament and said that um, the Spanish officer accused him of theft and cut off his ear. So Robert Jenkins, a British merchant captain, is without an ear. This led to people flooding the streets, crying for the pouring of Spanish blood. An ear for an ear. The conflict became known. Do you remember what the name of the conflict was? No, I don't remember. Girl, the War of Jenkins' Ear. (laughs) And it went on for a long time. It is real. So the British government publicly launched an attack on Cartagena, the uh, South American Caribbean city and the hub of Spain's colonial wealth. Okay. However, simultaneously, they launched a secret mission. And that was a mission of piracy. Ooh, not very dignified from the royal English civilization. Mm -hmm. So they was like, we're going to do this covertly. Yeah. So anyway, 2000 men were directed to take, sink and burn Spanish ships. Okay, and snatch up all the silver. Yeah. Like silver. Gold. Uh, Okay. 
and gold dream dust. bigger. No, silver was very, very, very absolutely useful <laughs> and valuable at the time. So the men who accepted the mission, including cheap, don't forget cheap, cheap, may not have known the details. But what they did know is that by going out to sea for king and country, they had the prospect of power and personal wealth because of the adventure. OK, Cheap's ship, the Centurion, stay with me would sail a route only a few seamen has survived. So he's told, hey, welcome aboard the Centurion. You'll be first lieutenant. Most people die on this route. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> okay. There's no Lido deck with endless <laughs> crab legs. <laughs> this is hard work. First, though, the boat needed to leave the shore. And it was difficult <laughs> because... The ships would have to be repaired, um, tested, repaired, and then the elements would have to cooperate in order for the ship to leave the dock. Uh, the wager going, this is the first time, by the way, we are mentioning the wager and that it's mentioned in the book. So David Chief is on the Centurion, but the wager is also going on this mission and it's not even a warship. Do you remember what the wager was? No, I don't. It's a merchant ship. It had to be retrofitted for war. So guns were added. It was uh, reinforced. It was smaller and less impressive, doused in paint to cover its worn down facade. Both ships, both men of war were stopped by the Thames, which did the most extraordinary thing. It froze. (laughs) (laughs) So the Thames River in London uh, froze. So neither, no boats could leave. And they had to wait nine months. The battle had already begun and they're just waiting for the river to thaw. These men are extremely frustrated. Those that wanted to go because the men of war were missing the most crucial component. Men. Men. So where the men at? I've heard Alexis say that more than a few times that Gavin, <laughs> I've taken her to. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, <laughs> the number of men and the type of men that they chose to just put on the ship. Yeah. So the Centurion and the Wager were scheduled to carry more or even double their recommended capacity. But sanity prevailed, just like y'all listening to this and you like, who would want to do this? I don't care how much <laughs> money is in it. A lot of people thought that way. <laughs> And despite the promise of wealth and fame, many men did just not want to go. They didn't want to spend months and years away from their families living with scallywags of society at the sea. Go figure. So press gangs were formed. And think of like posses in America who would round up free black Americans and force them into slavery for a fee. They got paid to do that or a bounty hunter. That's what these press gangs would do. They would tap people who just look like they've been on a boat. They would tap them on the shoulder and uh, kidnap them and make them go on the boat. If you had on your blue stripes today and it Mm -hmm. had a little um, anchor on it, you Mm. is going on the ship. (laughs) Gonna be fashionable. Now you ain't gonna see your family for ten years if you ever see them again. The tragedy, exactly. (laughs) That's your bad. But anyway, um, (laughs) so these men would round up former and current seamen and men who'd never been at sea, forcing them aboard boats because they looked like they had been at sea. You kind of look sea like. (laughs) I don't even know what that that means. So part two, the sea. And I'd like to start this part with a quote. Sorrow is knowledge. Those that know the most must mourn the deepest. The tree of knowledge is not the tree of life. Alexis, do you know who said those words? Of course I do. I know you do. My 
Byron. That's right. Lord Byron, the famous celebrated poet. Well, we're not going to meet him in the story because he's not born yet. But oh, we no. do meet Lord John Byron, who would later become the grandfather of the aforementioned famous poet. And Lord John Byron had it all. He had honor, prestige, a celebrated family name. But what didn't he have, Alexis? Dollars and cents. Coins. He had coins, but he lacked money and a place in the world, you guys. And so many <clears throat> made their way to the sea, many gentlemen at this time, mm-hmm. not just for prestige and honor, but for money, because a title don't necessarily mean cash. Uh, many gentlemen became seamen and expected to be promoted, earning that honorous title, honorous whatever. <laughs> President Samuel Jackson, who knew Byron's family, called Byron's position as seaman a perversion. And I want to read something here. There are about three parts. We won't have a dramatic reading, but there are three okay. um, places where I want to read directly from the book. And this one is um, from a gentleman who also became a seaman. So not from Lord John Byron, but another gentleman at the time. This is what he had to say about his first few days at sea. He said, Ye gods, what a difference. I had anticipated a kind of elegant house with guns in the windows, an orderly set of men in short, a species of (laughs) grassverner place floating around like Noah's Ark. Instead, he noted the deck was dirty, slippery and wet. The smells abominable, the whole sight disgusting. And when I remarked the slovenly attire of the midshipmen dressed in shabby round jackets, glazed hats, no gloves and some without shoes, I forgot all the glory. And for nearly the first time in my life, and I wish I could say it was the last, took the handkerchief from my pocket, covered my face and cried like the child I was. (laughs) Ain't nobody hit him. It's just nasty. Real talk. He's in tears. And I like that honesty. This is not for me. I thought I was going to be on Royal Caribbean. I'm on Carnival. Again. (laughs) I know this. I've been on quite a few Carnival cruises. (laughs) But imagine the shock of someone thinking they're going to be somewhere else and end up on Carnival. Oh, just therapy. So... Also, we want to make a note here of a man named John Duck. Alexis, do you remember who John Duck is? Oh, he was a, well, of course, he's a member of the crew, but is that the only black man? The only black man, the free. A free black seaman from London. The British Navy protected the slave trade, but captains in need of skilled sailors, because remember, they're desperate for men, often enlisted free black men. Duck, who didn't leave behind any written records, faced a threat that no white seaman did. If captured overseas, he might be sold into slavery. And that's from the book, that quote there. So Byron had to learn to work, curse and talk like a sailor. And this is where I ask Alexis what the following phrases mean. Now, we already know, toe the line, pipe down. What does piping hot mean, Alexis? Uh, Piping hot is when he called them to food. Scuttlebutt, which you did mention. What's that? It's the um, where they talk around a water cast and gossip waiting for their food. Yeah, you got it. Well, I think we went over the others I had noted, which are three sheets to the wind, turn a blind eye and again, toe the line. So Alexis stole that from me. Thanks a lot. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> me first, me. <laughs> Byron took the most humble part of the ship for his quarters. So even though he was a celebrated gentleman on land, when he got on the boat, he had to sleep in an area that was also reserved for amputation. So there was a table next to where he slept covered in blood eventually for, um, you know, not as anesthetic, 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 what's the word? Amputations without an- anesthesia. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> Life at sea, you guys, it was great. I mean, endless crab legs, terrible comedy shows, <laughs> nightly dances, a formal night. No, not really. A good seaman had to be a mathematician, a learned man, a gentleman. Messmates were like family. So uh, the people you ate with, you you got to choose. Every part of your life was pretty regimented, except when you ate. And so people naturally formed these communities that were closer than families. Um, organized games were common during downtime. There were beautiful birds and natural wonders. This is all true. But there were dangers, of course. A story from the wager is relayed at this part of the book where a captain's favorite is climbing the mast loses his grip and falls, taking down another seaman with him and just breaks open his skull on the mm. deck. So things can happen. Before they weighed anger, two major things happened uh, for this boat, for the wager. The first is that one captain of a ship uh, called Gloucester resigned. And this captain, by the way, he resigned. He later became captain of another ship. Charges were brought against him of cowardice. And he was like, I ain't no coward. And then he absconded and was never seen again. <laughs> He's a coward. That's fine. I would be too. Shoot, it's scary. Anyway, with him re- resigning, this initiated a cascade of promotions among commanding officers. So all the captains were rounded up and basically promoted. The wagers captain was promoted to a more powerful warship. Captain George Murray uh as promoted to the wager and Murray's small ship was without a captain. So um, first Lieutenant David Cheap was picked because all the captains are now promoted and no captains are left. So David Cheap, first Lieutenant was given the position of captain over the eight gun ship appropriate, appropriately named trial. So not wager. (laughs) The wager gets a new captain And then that captain's old ship, the trial, is now captained by First Lieutenant David Cheap. Quickly, their position was leaked and they stopped being the hunters and became the hunted. Spain was on their trail. Part three, the weapons. And this is where we'll meet Buckley. So I feel like we've met David Cheap. We've met Byron. And now we're going to meet Bulkley? Buckley. 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 His name is spelled B-U-L-K-E-L-E-Y. I'm going to say Buckley. Uh, John Buckley was an efficient seaman with over 100 years. Buckley is U-C-K. I know. (laughs) Buckley. Bulky? Bulkily? Bulkly. 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 (laughs) Who he English? So John Bulkley was an efficient seaman with over 10 years experience in the Navy. He'd worked his way up to the position of gunner. Like young gunner. Okay, now you get it. Unlike the captain and lieutenant who received orders from the crown and could be assigned from one ship to another, the gunner stayed with the ship and took his orders directly from the Navy. They were the heart of the ship, the gunners, and knew the vessel the best since they weren't hopping around from ship to ship. 
bulkily outranked Byron, but was socially inferior to him, having not been a gentleman from a celebrated family. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the dangers these men are facing. First of all, there are enemies at sea, right? Because who, what country has an interest um, in destroying this ship, Alexis? Uh, the Span, the Spanish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're they're the most interested since this, these are, um, since they're at war with uh, England. A 14-year-old seaman relates that he'd never seen a man killed before until during a skirmish, a splinter struck his friend's head, sending blood and brains over the edge of the ship. So that's another danger, okay? Not in this mission, but that just happened before. This this was found in the archives. Then there's disease, infection, pests. Do y'all hear me? They in the middle of the water, but they've also brought along a few mice, a few rats. I have a question. Yeah. Why I are know. there rats on the boat? And they are breeding. Okay, ain't no television. The rats ain't got nothing to do but have children. And they're on having the a lot of boat? Them. I know. Oh. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, and prevention was like the idea of disease prevention was archaic and basic understanding of sanitation was primitive. So it was even thought that diseases were tools by God used to wipe out sinners. Some of y'all believe that today. Get mm. help. Bodies were buried in shallow graves and overboard. There was also the threat of fire, right? You're floating in the middle of the ocean on a bunch of wood. A fire break out from maybe one of these guns. I don't know. Take you all out. Storms and extreme temperatures, hysteria and brain disease, also known as scurvy, thirst, hunger, malnutrition, incorrect navigation due to inferior tools. Friendly ships may even crash into each other. A man could be crushed by one of the great guns that required groups of men to operate. And those are just a few of the dangers. So, Kari, also, uh, are we on the wager? Are we talking about the wager now? We will be, yeah. Okay. Mm, go ahead. So one of the things that I remember them talking about as they were gathering people to uh, work the ship, to be the mm-hmm. crew of the ship, is that um, some of these people are already sick. They will them from an <sighs> infirmary and point. put them on the boat. So not only do you already have sick men on boat or you know, recovering from some sort of injury already, not really capable of being crew, but then you got disease and rats eating them and and spreading disease, spreading yeah. more disease. Yeah, that's a great point. I also realize here that um, Sheep is the captain of the wager by now, right? I think so. So I confused something earlier. Um, please disregard what I said about him being captain of the trial, which I think he was, but somehow he ended up captain of the wager. He did. So David Jeep is captain of the wager. And the wager saw all of these dangers and more. As Byron and his shipmates were being pounded by the forces of nature, they felt relief finally, believing they were clear for passage to Juan Fernandez. This was after clearing the Drake Passage. Now, the Drake Passage, listeners, is this body of water between South America's Cape Horn, Chile, Argentina, and the South Shetland Islands of Antarctica. The Drake Passage is considered one of the most treacherous voyages for ships to make. It is likely you won't survive. But if you do, it's a lot of money waiting on the other end. And that was enough. Uh, Mm. But soon the lookout notices formations. 
So they think they they're home free and they see these giants in the water. And those formations were rocks. Those rocks forced the vessels and the souls aboard back into the storm. So the weather's really bad. They think they're almost to their salvation and they have to force themselves to go back in the storm to avoid, avoid the rocks, which could literally rip holes into their ship and kill them all. Okay. So, so the rock in a hard place. There you go. Okay. The men aboard uh, sunk into madness and despair, envying those that had already died. Ooh. Soon the ship was separated from the others and the wager was alone, left to its own destiny. Was Cheap a captain after all? He had to ask himself, this is the first boat he's ever captained, the first man of war he's ever captained. And what would he do if his men were stranded on some island off the map? You know, it's all possible. Mm -hmm. You know, they might be assigned to spend the rest of their lives alone. What would he do then? A serious job. During one particularly harrowing storm, the men found themselves trapped in what was called the Gulf of Pain or the Gulf of Sorrows. Sheep thought that they could claw their way out of it and went to help his men fix the rigging um, in the forecastle. But he made a misstep and fell into basically an abyss, the, the book calls it. He plummeted six feet, which doesn't sound like a lot, right? But it's a lot. <laughs> I mean, is it? I don't yeah, know. A fall is a fall. I don't care. Yeah, a fall is a fall. Okay. He plummeted to, mm -hmm. through an abyss six feet high uh, into the ship's open hatchway and hit his shoulder bone so hard that it snapped and started protruding from his armpit. Y'all bone is showing. Ooh. Oh, my goodness. He wanted to get up and help his man. He like, <laughs> I can do it. I'm brave. And um, the surgeon gave him some opium for the first time in a long time. <laughs> Captain Cheap was at peace. He was resting. He was knocked out. Okay, this man needed rest. That's probably why he had to misstep. He was tired. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the most tragic event had not yet occurred. Soon during a storm so dense, Byron called it dreadful beyond description. Underwater rocks ripped a gaping hole into the wager. Yes, indeed, it happened anyway. Each man aboard saw the next few minutes as their last. One tried to throw himself overboard. Another began waving a sword while screaming that he was the king of England. OK, so he quickly lost his mind. A vet on board, though, galvanized the men. So he was like, this ain't my first rodeo. We gonna make it. <laughs> <laughs> Hemorrhaging water, the wagers sailed through the Gulf of Pain without a mast, without a rudder, and without a captain on the quarterdeck because the captain in the bowels on opium having a good old time sleep. Well, at this point, he had kind of like tried to awaken, but he's not in the position of a captain leading his men to no. safety, okay? Her fate was theirs and she fought with all she was worth, this man of war. Proudly, defiantly, nobly. At last she crashed, crashed into a cluster of rocks and began ripping apart. Nearby was an island. Part four, Castaways. You ever see Castaway? I think so. <laughs> is, is Tom Hanks when in it? Tom Hanks. Yeah, I've never seen it. I it's don't know why Castaway. I would. Castaway. People love that movie. Castaway mm -hmm. with the ball. Yes, I've seen it. Yeah, with the volleyball, yeah. Wilson or something. Yes, i never seen it. Let's move on. But this part four, <laughs> I'm calling Castaways. No Tom Hanks. Uh, 
Men began destroying evidence of their decisions. So their first thought is to cover their own behinds. If this gets back to the crown, what will happen to them? Um, any evidence of the of a part I played in this, I'm getting rid of it. Um, and Cheap was sick with the idea that the first ship he'd captain had been destroyed. Like, and many had died. Okay. It ain't like, uh oh, our boat's gone. Plat, 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 plat. We on the island. No, there was death. It was total mayhem and destruction. The storm continued. The men laying next to Byron, those who even the loudest noises did not awake, were realized dead. Cheap, however, showed himself to still be their captain. Somebody was getting out of line. He like socked him. He was like, I'm the order here. <laughs> and that created like a calm in everyone, right? Because even in this situation, there's still order. There is still colonialization. There's still the crown here as represented by the captain. Right. We gonna be okay. We gonna be all right. Nope. So anyway, the following days are filled with <laughs> both harrowing bravery and depravity. The men formed a village organized to find shelter and food. Okay. They entertained groups of native peoples. Lies were spread about people saying that they were like cannibals. Um, but this proved not to be true. In fact, the people they met were more civilized than they were. And that led to their downfall because they had started trying to steal their women and their canoes and the native peoples abandoned sheep and his men. They said, bye bye, cheap. OK. Drunkenness. I just want to touch on this a little more. There are a few times in this book where they meet native peoples and where those native peoples show them hospitality and just um, generosity. And they look down, the, the um, castaways look down on these people. These people know the land. They know how to get food. They know how to survive and they can teach you how to. But because you, you have in your head that you're better than them, anything they give you, you look down on to the point where you just want to take from them. That's all you see them as yeah. good for is uh, bringing you resources, taking from them. You want to take their women. You want to take their boats. And now you all alone again. That was so short sighted. Anyway. Drunkenness spread and men began to hoard resources, even killing fellows to acquire more resources. Then Byron found a dog in the woods who became his protective, loyal companion. And what happened to that dog, Alexis? They came and got that dog, killed it and ate it. Yeah, the men ate the dog. So Byron had finally found a friend. That's really how he felt about this dog. And the fact that the dog was protective of him made Byron love the dog more. But when the men showed up at his tent demanding the dog so that they wouldn't starve, he let them take it. He heard the dog crying until the dog wasn't crying anymore. And as the men ate the dog, he himself picked up a paw and bit down into it. No judgment. Um, hunger takes away your dignity. And truthfully, it's a dog. I'd be interested so, to know um, about that Minnesota starvation experiment they mentioned. Do so what Alexis is, mm -hmm, Alexis is talking about this experiment, as she said, uh, where they tr tried to, in a controlled environment, because it's an experiment, push a group to the edges of humanity using starvation. The men quickly forgot themselves and were ready to kill for even a bit of food. The amount of malnutrition that study group went through was nothing compared to what the castaways went through. They were pushed much farther in a real life envi environment without a control. Okay. 
Increasingly, the men become dissatisfied with Chief. And since he's their captain, they see him as the reason for their problems. He becomes a scapegoat. But bulkily, <laughs> many saw him as an instinctive leader. He bulkily was seemingly thriving among the misery. He awoke every morning according to routine. He maintained a fine home on the island. Many, While many sat around waiting for death, bulkily foraged, hunted, and collected prize materials for future use and bargaining. He also established a secret stash of guns and ammo. Okay, that's the gunner, you'll remember, the one that knew the vessel the best. He's the calmest under pressure. And this is when things go terribly wrong. Cheap versus cousins. Do you remember this argument that turned into something more? So I don't really remember the. Oh, I know what it was. Um, Cousins got the impression that Cheap was going to be withholding alcohol. We're going to put limitations on his alcohol intake and he didn't like it. So there was a we getting charged up kind of situation. They was getting charged up. So on June 7th, Captain Cheap ordered midshipman Henry Cousins to roll a cast of peas up the beach and into a tent. And Cousins said, "Uh, uh-uh, it's too heavy. Uh, he also seemed a little drunk. So Cheap was like, how dare you say no to your ca- to your leader? If it's too heavy, get some other men to help you. And Cousins was like, hey, y'all want to help me? He was talking real <laughs> soft. And he was like, I guess don't nobody want to help. Bye. <laughs> Just real belligerent. <laughs> so Chief accused Cousins of being an alcoholic and had him imprisoned in a tent. Later that night, Cheap checked on an unrepentant Cousins who said, you're worse than George uh, Shelvo- Shelvoke. And George uh, was the captain who was accused of purposely shipwrecking his crew for like the insurance money. <laughs> so that was like a scandalous thing to say. And then Cousins continued, though Shelvoke was a rogue, he was not a fool. And by God, you are both. Nope. <laughs> Nobody likes that. <laughs> Shame your cousins. Come on. Chief went to um, um, Kane Cousins, but was held back. Ah, so he went to discipline the subordinate, but the crew wouldn't let him. Surprisingly, Chief released Cousins, perhaps considering this a mild offense and not worth the hassle. The men then gave Cousins more liquor and he caused further ruckus. And maybe the men felt like he was putting words to their frustration, like let the fool dance mm-hmm. and say, well, we're, we're not brave enough to say. Cheap cut off Cousins' allotment of liquor and Cousins began arguing for more while Captain Cheap was in his quarters. The seaman who received Cousins' abuses shot a gun at him, possibly to scare him away. It didn't hit him. No bullets hit him. But Cheap heard the shot, emerged from his tent and shot Cousins in the head. So... Many men were afraid to move as Cousins is lying on the ground. But Byron bent to the side of his messmate. That's right. That Cousins was Byron's messmate. Cheap has shot Byron's brother, we'll say, uh, you know, adopted brother Mm -hmm. on this ship. Even if Cousins was thought a mutineer by the captain, he had no weapon, no real power, it was seen. Although words are very powerful, I'll I'll argue. Um, So Cousins underwent two surgeries to remove the bullet in his head, but eventually he did die. The Ark. So... After Cousin's death, a carpenter among them gave the men hope. He said if they could rescue the longboat that had been submerged from the wreck, they may be able to make an ark. And the men saw this as their salvation. But Cheap was convinced they'd be able to complete their mission. He's like, let's not go to safety. Let's go the opposite way and steal from Spain. 
And the men are like, <laughs> you gotta be kidding Listen, me. You we are have captain. been through enough. We don't like you. <laughs> We've been through enough. And then Chief is like, hey, don't forget your loyalty to king and country. And then men's loyalty became divided between Chief and Bulkley. The latter proved himself again to be more level-headed in their current circumstances. And I'm going to read another part here. It says, um, on August 3rd, Byron learned that Bulk Bulkley was gathering with most of the men to discuss their next steps. Should Byron go or stay faithful to his commander? Now, remember, Chief had shot Byron's friend, cousins, and cousins died. But Byron is still loyal to his captain. That's very interesting to me. The following day, Chief saw Bulkley approaching with an entourage. When the gunner was within a few feet of him, he paused and held up a piece of paper. He said that it was a petition and began to read it aloud as if he were on the floor of parliament. We, whose names are under mention due upon mature consideration, think it the best, surrest, and most safe way for the preservation of the body of people on the spot to proceed through the Strait of Magellan for England, dated at a desolate island on the coast of Patagonia. Though carefully worded, the statement had an unmistakable intent. And that intent was, we ain't listening to you no more, Cheap. And so many had signed the petition that it had been impossible for Cheap to single one of them out for punishment. So what was Cheap's move? He said, the art, the art won't work, y'all. It's not going to work. Mm -hmm. It would be better to use our weapons to board an enemy ship. It did not go well, his <laughs> counter argument. Okay. Like, are you then, <laughs> insane? What are you even talking about? You was just all for the arc when we was going to complete the mission. Now you're saying it won't work. And then an earthquake occurred. Jeez. Okay. This isn't touched on much, but these people, these men are at the end of their wits. And then an actual earthquake happens. Soon a hunger they never experienced swept over the men. More than 50 castaways died on the island. And Byron does acknowledge that some be began to butcher and eat the dead companions. They needed to get off the island. Mm -hmm. It was time for a mutiny. Under the guise of punishing him for shooting cousins, the men formed a mutiny against the chief. Chief captain. Along with chief, 10 men were left on the island and everyone else boarded little boats and headed off. On October 14, 1741, five months after being shipwrecked and more than a year after leaving England, Bulkley and his man boarded three boats. The problems were immediate. The storms that caused them to crash, they still there. The lack of food, still a problem. <laughs> OK, Byron and a few of the other men decided that the only way to survive was to go back and get cheap. Can you believe it? <laughs> so I think they'd only travel like a mile, though. The storms no. were so bad. They wasn't that far yeah, off, they right? Weren't, they weren't far off at all. No, they was like, let's go so, back and get a business. Sounds unreasonable to be traveling without our captain. <laughs> and they did. They went back to get their old captain Cheap, David Cheap. Both parties, by the way, um, both Buckley's party and David Cheap's party experienced nightmarish pains, hunger, danger at sea. But the mutineers eventually made it to Brazil to defend their decision and draw the empathy of the masses of the public. Do you remember what Buckley did? Mm. So they made it to Brazil and eventually back home to England. And in order to make sure everyone, because records are kept, like they know Bulkley, who, who's coming back as in charge. They're not saying that Cheap died. 
That, to their credit, they're not no. pushing a lie. So in this order for book. everyone to accept what is essentially a mutiny, what did he do? He sold book rights. He published, he, a, book. He published a book. Okay. <laughs> he published a book. Let me get my message in the streets so everybody and knows course, what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, he published his story six months after Buckley and Cummins had returned to England. The book was titled A Voyage to the South Seas in the year of 1740 to 1741. Of course, what a boring uh, the upper title. classes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was good because that long title let people know what they was in for. And they was like, oh, gossip ain't nothing to do. <laughs> so, um, of course, the upper class were outraged. Like, how dare you go against your authority? But the public sided with Buckley. And now, if that all intrigues you, actually, one more thing I want to tell you. Remember Anson? Anson is the fatherly figure, captain, that made um, David Cheap first lieutenant and eventually promoted him to captain of the wager. Well, he experienced similar circumstances, but Anson was a true leader. And while most of his men did die, they completed their mission and came back extremely wealthy. So they had a position, they had a fork in the road, we'll say. Uh, they were experiencing possible shipwreck. They knew that was coming. Um, and the decision was, do we save our own lives and abort the mission or do we continue on to a Spanish ship? And the men said, whether we live or die, we stick with you. That's a true leader. Mm -hmm. So Anson had his men, you know, what was left of them. And they, um, their ship was superior to the Spanish ship and they took it over. And inside, they just found bags of cheese. Now, they could have been sad, but they probably like me. They was like, get some wine, the cheese. They start cutting the cheese. They like, this hard. Under it, there is silver. And they had a lot less, of silver. And they had less men than the Spanish ship. This really emphasizes the power of a great leader mm -hmm. because those men mentally were ready to do anything to please not the crown, but Anson, their captain, who they genuinely loved. Right. And those men that did come back came back wealthy. I was surprised how much of the wealth the um, country let them keep. Right. I didn't, I didn't even expect that. came back with no worries. That. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Anson came back, the brave Anson. They made songs about him. People are really celebrating him, a true leader, a great captain. And the book says, amid all the hoopla, the scandalous wager affair seemed to blissfully fade away. But almost two years later, on a March day in 1746, a boat arrived in Dover carrying a thin, stern man with eyes fixed like bayonets. It was the long lost Captain David Cheap and accompanying him were the Marine Lieutenant Thomas Hamilton and the midshipman John Byron. Three men out of 10 survived. They'd been gone for five and a half years. And I'll stop there. <gasps> oh, okay. Yeah. That's the story. Oh, shall we take a break? Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> All right. Alexis, what were your thoughts of The Wager? Did you enjoy reading it? And would you recommend this book? What's your verdict? So listen, The Wager is really an interesting book. There were um, low points where I had no interest. 
And then there were really high points where I was like, ooh, what's next? So all the things that they experienced at sea after the mutiny, did that bore you? Because it was the same things they'd experienced on their way to being shipwrecked. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So nothing new there. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, what was interesting to me was all this stuff. And this is like factual stuff that's happening. Yeah. very interesting to me, all this factual stuff that's happening to these rats. The fact that they sent any old kind of person, regardless of your health condition, on the ship was just too much for me. So it was a lot of interesting stuff. And then when they started talking about boating and stuff, I didn't really have mm-hmm. that much interest in it. But it was a very intriguing story. Um, I was all in. It comes with lots of questions. Like, I, I mean, really lots of questions. Did... I mean, what's going on with David Cheap? Did he really make a right decision? It is really, is Buckley the, Buckley, Bulkley, mm-hmm. is Bulkley the bad guy? And and the interesting thing for me about this story, and I say it is a good story. I'm a good at real account. These are pulled together accounts that were already written. Is that writing down your journal was an important part of this. So as Mm -hmm. long as there was a journal, they could go back and look and retell a story. But individuals writing that story. So individuals can embellish or keep things out depending on how they want to appear in a story. And so when the ship was um, being wrecked and vocally went to go get the materials... He had seen that the stuff was already missing already. So I think Cheap has something to do with that because one of the Mm. first things they mentioned is that he was concerned about what was happening. And that bothers me. I'm a little all over the place, but hear me out. It really disturbs me that you're on your deathbed struggling for your life, shipwrecked, and you have to be concerned whether or not you're going to be court-martialed and hung when you get back home. Mm-hmm. Not about the safety of the individual. So, of course, I feel strongly that David Cheap took those papers to protect himself because he was mm-hmm. logging. That was a note in the beginning of the book, a portion of the book where they talked about the importance of logging and journaling and how that really tells the story. So I don't know if you can tell, but I do. And I did enjoy this book. I would read it again. I would read the because there's so much in it, so much to talk about. This is really one of those really great um, um, book club books that you can just dig into and just get all the questions asked and answered. What's your thought on what's your take on? I I really enjoyed this book. I would recommend it and I will absolutely read it again. I would actually read it versus listening to it so I can hold on to more of the information. How about you, Mm. Kari? What are your final thoughts on this book and would you recommend it? I highly recommend it. I love that the um, author is not trying to make you believe who's right and who's wrong. In fact, uh, not to give the ending away, but when they are brought to trial, Everyone is brought to trial, both sides. And the goal is not to protect the truth, but protect protect the ideologies of the crown. That, that was insane. That That is like a book club t- discussion. That is almost a plot twist yes. at the end. Yes. And the way it shakes out is very surprising. 
So in the end, when both parties are uh, brought together to answer before the authorities, what is important to those in power is not what you may have expected, but maybe it is. Uh, So (laughs) I really like that. And even in the details, you see that Alexis is drawing her own conclusions Mm -hmm. about the motivations uh, behind uh, certain people's actions. I love that you can do that. Mm-hmm. And there's evidence uh, for whatever side you take. Um, and so uh, really well done. Very concise. This book, it's easy to read. It's short. Um, it may look longer. Yeah. Than it is just because there is a um, like an index in the back and then a bibliography, because, of course, you have to sort um <laughs> You have to note sources uh, when you deal with nonfiction. Uh, So there are notes here also, uh, but the book itself is just a little over like 200, maybe 250 pages. Um, So really well done. Highly recommend. This is a great story that is about more than it seems. Yeah. Thank you, Kari. Thank you. Good book selection. I'm glad you um, selected it made this selection. Thank you. And you retold it really well. Let me just note that because I'm reading this book. I'm like, there's so much information. I would be totally overwhelmed trying to retell this story. But if I told you that um, everyone faces hunger, a lot of people die on their way to getting shipwrecked, just know all that stuff happened on their way to salvation, which they, on the way to being saved by finding some city in either Brazil or wherever the other boat ended up. So uh, yeah, this was without let up the most painful time in their life, no doubt. Mm -hmm. This was, um, this was a lot and everything bad that you can think of happening happened to these men. Yeah, for sure. And it's easier to digest because save for the men that were forced into labor, uh, some of these men chose to be there and their motivations are not what many of us would call honorable. So for these things to happen to them is very, uh, it's unfortunate regardless, but it's easier to digest knowing that they went in with their eyes open, many of them. Mm-hmm. And many of them didn't. Yeah. Because <laughs> like they were Alexis forced to more thick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm already so they didn't struggling. even have the heart to be there. Right. So people were trying to um, abort, what you call it, go AWOL. Mm-hmm. Every moment of the journey, <laughs> every moment of the journey, people are trying to escape this floating jail. Literally mm-hmm. a floating jail. Well, Kari, what are we reading yeah. next week? The Perfect Nanny by Leila Slimani. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening to Lit Society. We look forward to meeting up with you next week, Thursday. Lit Society is brought to you by me, Alexis Anaria, and Kari Herrera. Support hey. the cause by leaving a five-star <laughs> review for our show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and leave a comment on Apple uh, and Spotify about why you absolutely love us because we love you too. Also comment on our YouTube channel. We're trying to grow. Okay. <laughs> That's right. We're trying to reach a thousand subscribers and we're so close. So, so please close. subscribe. Mm-hmm. Tell your friends. Come on, let's get to money. If you've enjoyed what you just heard, tell a friend about Lit Society. Visit LitSocietyPod.com for show notes, this month's book list and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter and until next time readers 
Read something. Read something. 